just a reminder of what we are about. And uh, I don't want to be rude, but, uh, you know, the Hagglebers aren't getting any younger. And so we need younger people, and we need you to be willing to encourage grandchildren and children to follow the Lord and His leading uh, around the world. And so, um, and us to use the opportunities we have in, in, the wheat, in the fields that are white under harvest in ours, instead of just getting angry with people, let's show His grace and His love. So good morning. We were at the game, the game, last night, and I, um, the USC game, and I sat next to the only Utah fan in the church. I hope you enjoyed yourself. What? What? It's a lonely life. It's a lonely life, yeah, that's why no one's sitting around here, so. <laughs> but we had fun. We did, so uh, not, that was before the game started, we had fun. Not after the game, not after the game. So uh, once, once we were there, it was, it was awfully painful. So, c'est la vie. Well, we're continuing our journey through the invisibles uh, in the Old and the New Testament. We're unbelievably on our seventh invisible today. I can't believe it's been seven weeks already. Last Sunday, Andrew led us through Ehud. Oh, oh wait, no, it was Ehud. <laughs> Were you paying attention last week? We, I, I, I trained him all week to say Ehud, because it's not Ehud Barak, it's Ehud Barak, you know, the former prime minister. So, uh, and, and I just get to decide pronunciations around here. So, in the staff, you can pronounce it as you want, but uh, it is Ehud. All right. <laughs> I'm just... This morning, we're coming from that time of the judges, which uh, Andrew talked about, the seven cycles of sin and servitude and supplication and salvation and silence. And then um, we're now we're about 500 years later. David has been anointed king, but he's not king yet. Uh, he's hiding from Saul, waiting to become king. And so we tackled the riveting story this morning of Abigail. This story has it all. It's got intrigue. It's got injustice, it's got some conflict, it's got a lot of anger, it's got some revenge, it's got attempted murder, it's got an impassioned plea and a sudden death, and then romance. It's got, this, is, this is a telenovela, <laughs> only it's true, and it's all packed in 1 Samuel chapter 25. But before we jump in, I think there's a few facts we need to know. David has just spared the life of Saul at the cave at En Gedi in 1 Samuel 24. And after he has spared Saul's life, remember Saul was in going to the bathroom and he spares his life, David then flees and, and the two men really basically separate and, and they separate themselves and go their own way. And David, it says, the text says, goes to Maon. Now Maon is like, you've probably never heard of it, me either. So I'm going to show you where it is. Lord willing. There it is. Maon, can you see that? Got your glasses on? Well, you see the two dots together? The one is Car Carmel and the one below it is Maon. And Gedi's over there at the, at the, at the um, Dead Sea. And so he's kind of come up with, over this ridge and he is there to give some perspective. It's about seven miles south of Hebron. Uh, I don't know how far south from Jerusalem. Seven, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles. Not that far. 
from Jerusalem. Um, so there they are. Uh, Nabal lives in Maon. His ranch is in uh, Carmel. And while they were in the area, David's men protect Nabal's flocks uh, during, while they're out in the grazing process of the year. Because thieves are run around and they'd steal your goats or your sheep during that time. And we're told that Nabal is a very wealthy man. The, the Hebrew word to describe his wealth is the word heavy, significant. Um, he was loaded. It says he's got a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which, to be honest, doesn't mean a lot of, to us except, you know. His name in Hebrew means fool. So if you're saying, hey, Nabal, you're saying, hey, fool, every time you say it. So 1 Samuel chapter 25, starting in verse 2 says this, a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel, not the Carmel from up north, but the one right there in the desert, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. He was surly and mean. Matthew Henry, the commentator, calls him a muckworm. Whatever that is, not very nice. He was cursed. He, he had this narrow heart, and he was a mean-spirited man, and, and just, just had a groveling nature. He was, was basically an unreconstructed jerk. He was from the line of Caleb. Remember Caleb and um, who? Caleb and who? Jo Joshua and Caleb? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Sometimes, you know, you don't go to football games the night before on a Sunday. <laughs> they sent the 12 spies out, and the two that said we should go attack it was Joshua and Caleb. And so um, Caleb was one with faith and determination. Um, but Nabal is, is rich and mean, which isn't a good combination. But he has this wife named Abigail whose name means um, source of joy. She had an appropriate name for her, as we will see. The verse, verse 3 calls her an intelligent and beautiful woman. woman. So you have this mean-spirited, rich jerk married to an intelligent and beautiful woman. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's a joke. <laughs> How did that happen? It just happens, Right? Uh, maybe it was an arranged marriage. Um, other facts kind of help us understand this story. In verse 4, it says, While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. It is sheep shearing time, which means nothing to us, but it was a very significant time, actually. It was a festive season. You, 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 you got all your money, so you, you, if, if people help protect your flocks and you paid extra wages and kind of like Thanksgiving, it was harvest, kind of a very traditional time of hospitality. There was kind of an unwritten law that, that those who'd been protecting your sheep, when you sheared them, then you kind of gave them some of the profit. So let's walk through the story. Let's begin with David's reasonable request. It begins with David sending his servants to Nabal. And he says, okay, it's sheep shearing time. We've protected your sheep. Let, let's share the wealth now. Verse 5. So he, David, sent ten young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you. 
good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now, I hear that it is sheep shearing time. Duh. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Scrounge something up for us. And in verses 15 and 16, the, the servants say, yeah, that's what happened. They verify it. And so while his servants are speaking, what's David doing? I don't know what he's doing, but he's probably getting the fire ready. He's lighting the barbecue so they can have lamb chops for dinner. But there would be no feast among David's men that night. Nabal's stupid response. Verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Well, that's just stupid from Nabal's part. Here's a, a basic principle to remember in life. You don't mess around with a man who's going to become king. Proverbs 20, verse 2, a king's wrath is like the roar of a lion. He who angers him forfeits his life. Nabal's about to learn the truth of that proverb. He made two mistakes. He refused to, to acknowledge David and the help David had been in keeping his flock safe. And second, he insulted David's father and David. You don't diss David's father. That's a big mistake. And David wasn't going to overlook it. And we can see David's response to, to Nabal in verse 13. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. He was ticked off and he was going to take his revenge on this muckworm, Nabal. You don't put on swords to have a discussion. This wasn't going to be a negotiation and the odds are now about 401 in favor of David. It's like, it's like killing a cockroach with a shotgun. And so he heads up. And, and, but David, really? Why are you going to go attack Nabal for this? And so David, if you analyze his reaction, I think he has a good reason to be ang angry. And, and, but he has no right to seek revenge. He would have been better off just saying, you know, this guy's a jerk. Let's just ignore him. We'll go, go to Burger King instead. But he didn't. Now, before going any further in the story, what, let me remind us, happened in the chapter before this. David spared the life of Saul in a cave near En Gedi. If anything, David has a greater reason to kill Saul and then he becomes king. Then, then he does this Nabal character. And he had a perfect opportunity at the cave. But he doesn't. And so Nabal comes along. He insults him. And what's David going to do? Wipe him out. Nabal's the lesser man. He's, he's really a nobody. But somehow to David, he's much more irritating. David the merciful in chapter 24 becomes David the vengeful. 
And if Abigail doesn't come along and stop him on the road, he would have killed Nabal in a bloody massacre. He really had every intent to wipe them all out. So that the shock of the story is not Nabal's words. I mean, he's a muckworm. The shock is how quickly the uncontrolled anger that David has turns him into a killer. So Abigail to the rescue. The stage is set. David's on his way with 400 men. There's a massacre going to happen anytime. And enter Abigail into the picture. She deserves a place among the great women of the Bible. Why? Because of what she does and what she says. Because of, of the courage and the grace she has under a time of pressure. And because she's quick in her thinking and she's wise in, in her intercession. So knowing that David's men were hot and tired and hungry, what does Abigail do? She decides, I'm going to whip up a meal for these 400 men. The meal includes, if you read the text, it's got bread and wine and lamb and grain and raisins and figs. And if I intercept them and feed them, maybe I can talk David out of killing my husband. Proverbs 16, 14, a king's wrath is a messenger of death, but a wise man will appease it. So she wants to appease it. And her offering of food when she approaches illustrates the concept biblically of propitiation. Propitiation means to turn away the wrath by an offering, by a gift. And we usually apply that to the death of Christ, but here it's applied to a human relationship. She's going to try to propitiate the anger of David. Verse 20. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. So David kind of comes over the rise. He comes into this valley where she's at, and he's clearly on a mission. They're kicking up a lot of dust, these 400 men. He's angry, and his body language communicates that. She knows he's mad, and I'm going to teach that so-and-so a lesson. And he had just talked to his men about it. Verse 21, David had just said... It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. He says this, he looks up, and what does he see? This beautiful woman coming down on a donkey, reins in one hand and a crock pot in the other. Here comes Martha Stewart to the rescue. <laughs> if there's any such thing as love at first sight, this could be it. He looks at all the food. <laughs> he knows behind him there's 399 men who are hungry, maybe 400, I don't know. And when they finally meet, Abigail does something rather unique. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. And she's going to ask him to, to take out his wrath on her because she's Nabal's wife. I don't think David's ever seen a woman like this. In everything she does, you just see her grace, her, her greatness. She acts very quickly. She's generous in her gift. The crockpot was big. And she's wise. And she cares more for her family than she does her own reputation. 
So, Abigail's three arguments. What's she going to say? What follows in verses 24 through 31 is her speech to David. It's kind of an example of how do I handle an angry person? See, with a gentle touch and the right words, she, she diffuses this, this situation. So let's follow her argument. She begins with, it's my fault, blame me, verse 24. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Then she says, you know, my husband is a fool. Verse 25, may the Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool and folly goes goes with him. Now, it sounds sort of like, you know, she's not really being very loyal to her husband here. But, but I don't think you have to take it that way. She's not disloyal. She's actually protecting Nabal by telling David, here's the reality. This is what's going on. He's a fool. I'm going to admit the truth. And then she offers three reasons why David shouldn't kill them all, why she, he should spare her husband. Number one, God sent me to protect you from making a foolish mistake. God sent me to protect you, David, from making a foolish mistake. Verse 26, now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servants has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servants' offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. For David, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. It's, it's kind of the, 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 the doctrine of re, uh, restraining grace. God's stepping in here to keep you from doing something you shouldn't do, David. God sent me to keep you from committing murder. The murder does happen to be against my husband, but you know, it's still murder. And she appeals, appeals to his higher nature. My husband's a fool. Just ignore him. Let the Lord fight this battle for you. Argument number two, God is the avenger of the wicked. God's going to avenge what my husband did to you, David. Let him do that. Verse 29, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, who's doing that? Saul, the king. The life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Ooh, she's smart. It's a great argument. She refers to Saul's pursuit of David and reminds David that God's going to keep him safe in the bundle of the living. God has protected you, David. He's going to continue to protect you. You can show some kindness to Nabal. It, it's not going to kill you. Well, it's not going to hurt you. Bad, bad choice of words. The whole kill metaphor. Never mind. She mentions a pocket of a sling, which is a clear reference to what? The day that David slew Goliath. Everybody knew who David was. Nabal knew who David was. And it's a subtle way of reminding him, if you, re, if you rely on the Lord to fight your battles... You're going to win every time, David. Why are you taking this into your own hands? Third argument, you will never regret it later. You know, if you don't do this, you're not going to regret it. 
Verse 31, when the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, when you're the king, my master, David, will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. She says, you know, David, you are going to be king someday. And when that happens, little pipsqueaks like Nabal they won't matter. And I think it took some, some what's really important, I think she's saying, is you've got to enter this, this throne, this kinghood, with your hands clean. It takes enormous faith to say at this moment, David, you're going to be king. They're, I mean, there's 400 men. They're just running around hiding from Saul. But in light of the David's destiny... You can't afford to let temptation come in in this moment. And, and don't, don't bow to the temptation to take revenge. And the same is true for us. Revenge, it might feel good today, but it's going to feel bad later on. You don't win by just evening the score. Some tragedies could be avoided if we would just stop with the revenge Broken relationships don't have to break. Tears don't have to be shed. Marriages can get healed if we just stop and think before we act or before we say something. Because many of us have said or done things in anger that we wish a thousand times we could take them back. So once Abigail finishes her speech... The story comes to a rather dramatic and quick climax. David agrees with her. Verse 32. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you, if you had not Come quickly to meet me. Not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. See, David praises God because of what Abigail has done. See, David sees the hand of God in what she did. I have a living illustration of what Solomon would later write in Proverbs 17.10. A rebuke impresses a man of discernment more than a hundred lashes of a fool. Or Proverbs 15, 31, he who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. In this case, David got the wisdom and he spared Nabal's life. For now. Many of us, I suppose, think that it's enough just to take a rebuke quietly and peacefully. Few of us take a rebuke thankfully. Fewer still see it and recognize it as the hand of God in our lives. Not often do we thank the person who cared enough and had the courage enough to stop us in our tracks. But that's what David did. As for Nabal, his life has a little different ending. While Abigail is saving his life, what's he doing? text says he's back having a party. It's the festival time. It's sheer sheep shearing time. And when she finally gets back home after this incident, he's drunk. 
Verse 36, when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. He has a, apparently has a heart attack, goes into a coma. He's like a stone, and he dies 10 days later. And how does David respond? Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause, my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Praise God that I didn't do this. God has now stepped in, so I didn't have to. That should be the end of the story. But there is another loose end to tie up, of course. Nabal is dead, so what does that mean for Abigail? She's single. Oh, well, that can't last. And so David realizes what a, what a wonderful woman she is. And in verse 39 it says, Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. Well, of course, that's what you do. Already has a couple. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and am ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and, attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. It's kind of a fairy tale ending to a very strange story, is it not? As it turns out, she's probably one of the best things that happened to David. In retrospect, we can see that, that God solved a very dangerous situation because a godly woman intervened and convinced an angry man to wait for God to do his work. And once he did that, they became husband and wife. I'm not going to get into the whole polygamy thing. I want to come to three important lessons for us out of this text. As you stand back and look at this story, I think three things can stand out for us. Number one, yesterday's victories do not win today's battles. Just because you were successful yesterday is no guarantee for today or tomorrow. And it really begins with Nabal being a Calebite. Godly parents, godly ancestors are no guarantee of godly offspring. If Nabal had exhibited the same faith and respect that Caleb was known for, his end would have been quite different. And then great wealth is not an indicator of good character or the blessing of God. Look back at David, though, this morning. How quickly he was overcome by his anger and how quickly the same thing can happen to us. You might win the battle yesterday, but that's no guarantee you'll win it today. You may have patience today and snap at the kids tomorrow. Sounds like our lives, does it not? We may conquer in a moment of enormous temptation and then lose it in a, in a tiny skirmish tomorrow. And as I consider the larger context and the flow of events in the life of David, I think we can understand what's going on here. David 
in chapter 24, he knew this, this confrontation with Saul, and he knew what was at stake. And he knew, he'd made a plan, what am I going to do if faced with that exact situation? And he just did the plan. Our problem is in daily life, we often forget to make the plan. And because he had plenty of time to deal with his own anger in relation to Saul, he was ready when that moment came. And he was able to show mercy to Saul at En Gedi because he had thought it through many, many times and he had decided beforehand what he was going to do. And that same principle really explains his reaction to Nabal. He wasn't prepared for that. He had every reason to expect better things of Nabal, so he wasn't prepared for the hostile rejection. And because he wasn't prepared, he's angry. What a lesson. New Testament says, be sober, be, be vigilant. Diligent. Vigilant. That's the word. It's the nature of spiritual warfare, is it not? In the moment of great triumph, you may stumble and fall. And when we face a great crisis, we normally rally with all of our resources, and we can make it through that moment because we pray and we seek God and we search the Word and we depend on our friends and we know we have to lean hard on God or it's not going to happen. And then some little trial comes along, an everyday irritation And we're much more prone to go in to that battle unprepared and unarmed with no plan. And we've set ourselves up to fall. The devil's a cunning foe. He knows when to hit us and when to hit us hard. He knows that after a great triumph, in a moment we're likely to let our guard down, which explains why you sometimes see Wonderful, great Christians, the kind who are willing to go be in jail for the Savior, fall under the ordinary pressures of life. There are good people who lose their temper at the slightest provocation. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Second lesson, I think, is revenge is for fools. Revenge is for fools. David learned this lesson the hard way. Though he's a man after God's own heart, if it wasn't for the intervention of Abigail, he would have made a mistake that would have marred his future. Revenge never works the way we want it to work. We call it sweet revenge when we want to get even. We're going to settle that old score. We're going to give him a dose of his own medicine. We're going to measure out that eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, blow for blow. But it's still wrong. We can never be sure what a just punishment is, can we? We don't have both sides of it, not really. We don't really know all the facts. So we might be too harsh or we might be too lenient. And when we seek revenge, we're taking the authority that God has reserved for Himself and we're going to block his work in somebody else's life. Either we let God do it, or we can do it. And God's much better at that than we are. Our job, show kindness, turn the other cheek, go the second mile, love our enemies, 
Pray for those who persecute us. Pour hot coals of love on their head. When we do that, our kindness may convict them in a way that our harsh words never will. So once again, in this situation, we come face to face with who? The Savior, who forgave those who killed him, who died so that they can go free. He who loved those who hated him. Why aren't we doing the same thing? Number three, trust the bigger story. Abigail's situation, it turned around rather dramatically overnight. Not long after that, her wicked husband's dead, and she's married to David. But maybe the more surprising outcome is the role that Abigail will have on the life of David. As Israel's anointed king and predecessor to Messiah, he plays a rather pivotal role, wouldn't you say, in the biblical narrative? But what if he had given in to his rage on that day? Would he have made restitution and turned his back toward God? Would he have God eventually had to replace him with someone else as he did with Saul? I don't know. It's speculative. But the story of Abigail is here for a reason. Perhaps it's because God wants us to see how her story has, is, is an important part of God's story. It's worth noting, I think, that even after she married David, you know, this isn't like a happily ever after kind of marriage. A hint in verse 44, David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were both his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Paltiel, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. Saul had already taken his daughter and given him to somebody. This family's a mess, folks. She moved in to a very complicated family. David has more wives coming. At one point in her life, she will be kidnapped along with the rest of David's entourage. She will eventually bear him a son, but it's not gonna, that son doesn't get to be king. He's not going to be the heir. She will watch with sorrow as one of David's sons tries to steal the throne. And the family is torn apart. See, the Bible isn't a collection of fairy tales when it comes to telling of individual stories. The happy ending is where? In the bigger story, in the bigger narrative, in God's grand plan to rescue His entire creation with messy, sinful people who can only be blameless through the person of Jesus Christ. It's in this bigger story in which we put our trust. I like to think that Abigail, during her days, she lived and she knew this truth that Paul would later, in, later state in 1 Corinthians 4.1, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. She was wealthy, but she had a hard life. 
And that's, I think, how we as believers today find strength too. No matter what's going on around us, in our world, in our families, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight, significant glory. Two personal applications, and I'll be done, maybe. First, it might be that your need this morning, the greatest need you have, is to meet Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because in the story of Abigail is the story of the gospel. Right on the surface. You see, David pictures the human race overcome with anger, lusting for revenge, heading full speed down that road into that valley to, to wreak its, its revenge and, and on the road of self-destruction. And Abigail, the picture of our Savior, who takes it upon herself to intercept, and Jesus run, does the same, to get in our way as we headlong rush into, into destruction. Jesus stands in the road, he stops us in our tracks, and he says, here, this is what I offer you. And by his death on the cross, he turned away forever the anger of God. And his bloody sacrifice satisfied God's righteousness demands. And he creates the basis on which we can be forgiven. You see, God accepted the death of his son, and therefore he will accept us if we will believe in that death and trust in it. Which means that if you've never met Jesus Christ, he's standing in the road in front of you. He's there whether you can see him or not. He stands with his arms stretched out. Consider your ways, he said, like Abigail pleading with David. Turn from your sin. Trust in the Savior. And it's a moment to believe. If you have the slightest desire to be saved, if you have the slightest desire to have your sins forgiven, and if you need a new life, if you want to know, God is standing there. He's calling you. We're going to stop what we're doing and bow on our faces and acknowledge him for who he is and run to the cross of Christ and lay hold of the Son of God and trust in him and him alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And second personal application, I'm sure there's some of us, maybe even many, who have some area of our life that we have walled off within us. And we don't let anybody in there. Not even God. Not even the Spirit of God. It's a private place. It's a hidden room, a storeroom of hatred and revenge. And maybe we pretend that the room isn't there. It's a room that God wants to enter, but will not without your permission. And it's very possible that you're nursing hatred and bitterness and a desire to get even with somebody who has hurt you terribly. And you might say, I'm justified in this. They did me wrong. And you know what? You might be right. But I would ask you, how can God's Holy Spirit do His work and bring a life of blessing to you if you're so angry. If your life is ever going to change, you've got to open that door 
because you've locked it from the inside. I can't open it for you. God won't open it for you. And no one is more miserable than the person who harbors this hatred in their heart. You want some joy? Then invite the Holy Spirit to come in. And instead of hatred, you can find love. Instead of bitterness, you can find kindness. Instead of revenge, you can find forgiveness. And the reality is, if we're all honest, sometimes that anger is directed at God. And we are mad at Him. And today they'll tell you, then you need to forgive God, to which I would say, absolutely not. We have a holy God who has done nothing to bring anger out of our lives. If I'm describing your life, God's word to you is this. Open that hidden door. Will you let my spirit... And we can't solve all anger issues this morning. But when David responded in anger, David was dishonoring God because it was God's job to, to avenge, not ours. Romans 12, 19, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you need to just get honest with God and open up some of those hidden closets and say, Spirit, come. I need to deal with this anger. Let's pray. Father, there's some here who need to know Christ as Savior. I pray this morning they would see in Abigail the figure of the Savior standing between us and our own destruction. And just as David believed her message, they might believe yours. And this morning they would believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for some of us, Father, would you bring us to the place that we can deal with our anger, that our bitterness, that we'll be honest and say, begin this morning the chance to come into my life. I want to listen to you and learn how to deal with this in a godly way that you might replace my anger with joy, that your spirit would have the freedom to work within me. In Jesus' name, amen.